Chapter Three of the Jesus of History by T. R. Glover. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: The Man and His Mind. It is a commonplace with those who take literature seriously that what is to reach the heart must come from the heart, and the maxim may be applied conversely that what has reached a heart has come from a heart, that what continues to reach the heart among strange peoples in distant lands after long ages has come from a heart of no common make. The Anglo-Saxon boy is at home in the Odyssey, and when he is a man, if he has the luck to be guided into classical paths, he finds himself in the Aeneid, and from this certain things are deduced about the makers of those poems that they knew life looked on it with bright keen eyes loved it and lived it over again as they shaped it into verse when we turn to the first three gospels we find the same thing here are books with a more world-wide range than homer or virgil translated again and again from the first century of their existence on to the latest and then more than ever into all sorts of tongues to reach men all over the globe and that purpose they have achieved they have done it not so much for the literary graces of the translations or even of the original authors though in one case these are more considerate than is sometimes allowed that the Gospels owe their appeal to the recorded sayings and doings of our Lord is our natural way of putting it today. But if for our Lord we put a plainer description, more congenial to the day in which the Gospels were written, we shall be in a better position to realize the significance of the worldwide appeal of his words. Thus and thus, then, spoke a mere provincial, a Jew, who, though far less conspicuous and interesting, came from the region of Meliega and Philodemus, not from their town of Gadara, nor possibly from their district, but from some place not so very far away. It was not to be expected that he should win the hearts of men as he did. He had not the Greek culture of the two Gadarenes. Celsus even found his style of speech rather vulgar, but he has as a matter of common knowledge, so common as hardly to be noted, won the hearts of men in every race and every land. The fact is familiar, but we have, as historians and critics, to look for the explanation. What has been his appeal? And what the heart and nature from which came this incredible power and reach of appeal? Out of the abundance the overflow of the heart the mouth speaketh he said this he amplified as we have seen by his insistence on the weight of every idle word the unstudied and spontaneous expression or ejaculation the reflex in modern phrase which gives the real clue to the man's inner nature and deeper mind which justifies him therefore or condemns him the overflow of the heart he holds shows more decisively than anything else the quality of the spring in its depths 
here is the suggestion which we find true in ordinary life as well as in the study of literature if we turn it back upon its author he at least will not complain and we shall perhaps gain a new sense of his significance by approaching him at a new angle from an outlook not perhaps much frequented how did he come to speak in this manner to say this and that to what feeling or thought to what attitude to life is this or the other saying due if he too spoke out of the overflow of his heart and we can believe it when we think of the freshness and spontaneity with which he spoke of what nature and of what depth was that heart we can very well believe that much in his speech that was unforgettable to others he forgot himself they remembered they could not help remembering what he said but he no he said it and moved on keeping no register of his sayings and so much the more natural and characteristic they are nor would he like smaller people be very careful of the form and turn of his speech it was never set certainly he gave his followers the rule not to study their language whether or no he had consciously thought it all out we can see the value of his rule and how it fits in with his way of life and safeguards it under such a rule speech will not be stereotyped no set form of words will impose itself on the free movement of thought the mind can and will move of itself unhampered and when the mind keeps and develops such freedom of movement it commonly breaks new ground and handles new things not to be careful of our speech means for most of us slovenly thinking but when a man thinks in earnest and takes truth seriously when he speaks with his eye on his object his language will not be slovenly his instinct for fact will keep his speech pure and true this is what we find in the sayings of jesus there is form but living form the freedom and grace which the clear mind and the friendly eye communicate insensibly and inimitably to language our task in this chapter is primarily a historical one from the words of jesus we have to work back to the type of mind from which they come there is always danger in such a task we may forget the wide and living variety of the mind we study our own minds may not be large enough nor tender enough not various quick and sympathetic in such a degree as to apprehend what we find to see what it means and to relate it to itself detail to whole how much greater the danger here while we analyze we have to remember that the most correct analysis of features or characteristics may easily fail to give us a true idea of the face or the character which we analyse the whole is more than the sum of its parts the face and the character have an integrity a wholeness the detail may be of immense value to us studied as detail but for the true view the detail familiar as it may be to us and dear to us must be sunk in the general view
especially is this true of great characters the reconstruction of a personality to borrow a phrase from some psychologists is a very difficult matter even when we are masters of our detail there is a proportion a perspective a balance a poise about a character my terms may involve some mixture of metaphors but if the mixture brings out the complexity and difficulty of our task it will be justified above all there is life and as a life deepens and widens it grows complex unintelligible and wonderful it is more so than ever in the case of jesus yet we have to grapple with this great task if we are to know him even if here as elsewhere we realize quickly that the beginning of real knowledge is when we grasp how much we do not know how much there is to know attempted in this spirit a study of the mind of jesus and his characteristics should help us forward to some further intimacy with him the gospels do not like some biographies ancient and modern give a place to the physical characteristics of jesus suetonius in a very short sketch adds the personal aspect of the poet horace who it is true had led the way by such allusions and tells us how augustus said he was a squat little pot sicilis oba the acts of thecla in a similar way describe st paul's short figure with its suggestion of quickness but the only personal traits of this sort that i recall in the new testament are the eyes of jesus and paul's way of stretching out a hand when he spoke in view of this reticence it is rather remarkable how often the gospels refer to jesus looking he looked round upon on the people in the synagogue and then with some suggestion of a pause and silence while he looked he saith unto the man when peter deprecated the cross we find the same when he had turned about and looked on his disciples he rebuked peter when the rich young ruler came so impulsively to him to ask about eternal life jesus looking upon him loved him and we touch there a certain reminiscence of eyewitnesses there are other references of the same kind in the narratives the look seems to have come into the story naturally without the writer's noticing it there must have been much else as familiar to his friends and companions they must have known him as we know our friends the inflections of his voice his characteristic movements the hang of his clothes his step in the dark and all such things did he speak quickly or slowly or move his hand when he spoke the teaching posture of buddha's hand is stereotyped in his images we are not told such things about jesus and guessing does not take us very far yet a stanza in one of the elegies written on the death of sir philip sidney may be taken as a faraway likeness of a greater and more wonderful figure and not lead us very far astray a sweet attractive kind of grace the full assurance given by looks perpetual comfort in a face the lineaments of gospel books if we are not explicitly told of such things by the evangelists they are easily felt in the story 
the paradoxes as we call them a rather dull name for them surely point to a face alive with intellect and gaiety the way in which for instance the leper approaches him implies the man's eyes fixed in close study on jesus's face and finding nothing there to check him and everything to bring him nearer when mark tells us that he greeted the syrophoenician woman sally about the little dogs eating the children's crumbs under the table with the reply for the sake of this saying of yours we must assume some change of expression on such a face as that of jesus we read again and again of the interest men and women found in his preaching and teaching how they hung on to him to hear him how they came in crowds how on one occasion they drove him into a boat for a pulpit it is only familiarity that has blinded us to the charm they found in his speech they marvelled at his words of charm to the gaiety and playfulness that light up his lessons for instance there is a little noticed phrase that grows very delightful as we study it in his words to the seventy disciples into whatsoever house ye enter first say peace to this house the common salam of the east and if a son of peace be there your peace shall rest upon it if not your salam will come back to you a son of peace not the son of peace what a beautiful expression what a beautiful idea too that the unheeded peace comes back and blesses the heart that wished it as if courteous and kind words never went unrewarded think again of solomon in all his glory before the phrase was hackneyed by the common question do not such words reveal nature a more elaborate and more amusing episode is that of the pharisees drinking operations we are shown the man polishing his cup elaborately and carefully for he lays great importance on the cleanness of his cup but he forgets to clean the inside most people drink from the inside but the pharisee forgot it dirty as it was and left it untouched then he sets about straining what he is going to drink another elaborate process he holds a piece of muslin over the cup and pours with care he pauses he sees a mosquito he has caught it in time and flicks it away he is safe and he will not swallow it and then adds jesus he swallowed a camel how many of us have ever pictured the process and the series of sensations as the long hairy neck slid down the throat of the pharisee all that amplitude of loose hung anatomy the hump two humps both of them slid down and he never noticed and the legs all of them with the whole outfit of knees and great padded feet the pharisee swallowed a camel and never noticed it it is the mixture of sheer realism with absurdity that makes the irony and gives it its force did no one smile as the story was told did no one see the scene pictured with his own mind's eye no one grasped the humour and the irony with delight could anyone on the other hand forget it a modern teacher would have said in our jargon that the pharisee had no sense of proportion and no one would have thought the remark worth remembering 
but Jesus's treatment of the subject reveals his own mind in a number of aspects. When he bade turn the other cheek, that sentence which Celsus found so vulgar, did no one smile then at the idea of anybody ever dreaming of such an act? Nor at the picture of the kind brother taking a boat from his brother's eye with a whole bulk of timber in his own? Nor at the suggestion of doing two miles of forced labour when only one was demanded? Nor when he suggested that anxiety about food and clothing was a mark of the Gentiles? Did none of his disciples mark a touch of irony when he said that among the Gentile dynasties the kings who exercise authority are called benefactors? It was true. Euagetes is a well-known kingly title, but the explanation that it was the reward for strenuous use of monarchic authority was new. Are we to think his face gave no sign of what he was doing? Was there no smile? We are told by his biographer that Marcus Aurelius had a face that never changed, for joy or sorrow, being an adherent, he adds, of the Stoic philosophy. The pose of superiority to emotion was not uncommonly held in those times to be the mark of a sage, Horace's nil admirari. The writers of the Gospels do not conceal that Jesus had feelings and expressed them. We read how he rejoiced in spirit, how he sighed and sighed deeply, how his look showed anger. They tell us of his indignant utterances, of his quick sensitiveness to a purposeful touch, of his fatigue, of his instant response, as we have just seen, to contact with such interesting spirits as the Syrophoenician woman and the rich young ruler. Above all, we find him again and again moved with compassion. We saw the leper approach him with eyes fixed on the face of Jesus. The man's appeal, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. His misery moves Jesus. He reaches out his hand, and with no thought for contagion or danger, he touches the leper. So deep was the wave of pity that swept through him. And he heals the man, it would almost seem as if the touching impressed the spectators as much as the healing. Compassion is an old-fashioned word, and sympathy has a wide range of suggestions, some of them by now a little cold. We have to realise, if we can, how deeply and genuinely Jesus felt with men, how keen his feeling was for their suffering and for their hunger, and at the same moment reflect how strong and solid a nature it is that is so profoundly moved. Again, when we read of his happy way in dealing with children, are we to draw no inference as to his face and what it told the children? Finally, on this part of our subject, we are given glimpses of his dark hours. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of his offering up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, and learning obedience by the things that he suffered. And Luke, perhaps dealing with the same occasion, says that he was in agony, a strong phrase from a man of medical training. Luke again, with the other evangelists, refers to the temptations of Jesus. 
and in a later passage records the poignant and revealing sentence ye are they that have continued with me in my temptations finally there is the last cry upon the cross so frankly and yet so unobtrusively they lay bare his soul as far as they saw it from what is given us it is possible to go further and see something of his habits of mind his thought will occupy us in later chapters here we are concerned rather with the way in which his mind moves and the characteristics of his thinking first of all we note a certain swiftness a quick realization of a situation a character or the meaning of a word men try to trap him with a question and he instantly recognizes their trickery when they ask for a sign he is as quick to see what they have in mind he catches the word whispered to jairus half years half divines it in an instant he is surprised at the slowness of mind in other men and in other things he is as quick he sees the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time he beholds satan falling aorist principle from heaven like lightning two very striking passages which illuminate his mind for us in a very important phase of it we ought to have been able to guess without them that he saw things instantly and in a flash that they stood out for him in outline and colour and movement there and then that is plain in the parables from nature and here it is confirmed is there in all his parables a blurred picture the edges dim or the focus wrong the tone of the parables is due largely to this gift of visualizing to use an ugly modern word and of doing it with swiftness and precision several things combine to make this faculty or at least go along with it a combination not very common even among men of genius an unusual sense of fact a very keen and vivid sympathy and a gift of bringing imagination to bear on the fact in the moment of its discovery and afterwards in his treatment of the fact on his sense of fact we have touched before in dealing with his close observation of nature it is an observation that needs no notebook that is hardly conscious of itself there is as we know a happy type of person who sees almost without looking certainly without noticing and sees aright too the temperament is described by wordsworth in the opening books of the prelude the poet type seems to lose so much and yet constantly surprises us by what it has captured and sometimes hardly itself realizes how much has been done the gains are not registered but they are real and they are never lost and come flashing out all unexpectedly when the note is struck that calls them so one feels it was with jesus's intimate knowledge of nature it is not the knowledge of botanist or naturalist but that of the inmate and the companion who by long intimacy comes to know far more than he dreams wise master manners wrote the greek poet pindar long before know the wind that shall blow out on the third day 
and not wrecked for headlong greed of gain. They know the weather, as we say, by instinct, and instinct is the outcome of intimacy, of observation accurate but self-conscious. It chimes in with this instinct for fact that Jesus should lay so much emphasis on truth of word and truth of thought. Any hypocrisy is a leaven. Any system of two standards of truth spoils the mind. The divided mind falls because it is not one thing or the other. It is impossible to serve God and mammon. Truth and God go together in one allegiance and a non-theocentric element in a man's thought will be fatal, sooner or later, to any aptitude he has by nature for God and truth. We find this illustrated in Jesus' own case. At the heart of his instinct for fact is his instinct for God. He goes to the permanent and eternal at once in his quest of fact, because his instinct for God is so sure and so compelling. Bishop Phillips Brooks noted in Jesus's conversation a constant progress from the arbitrary and special to the essential and universal forms of thought, a true freedom from fastidiousness, a singular largeness in his intellectual life. The small question is answered in the larger. The life is more than meat, and the body more than raiment. When he is challenged on divorce, he goes past Moses to God. He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. Every question is settled for him by reference to God and to God's principles of action and to God's laws and commands. And God, as we shall see in a later chapter, is not for him a conception borrowed from others a quotation from a book. God is real, living, and personal, and all his teaching is directed to drive his disciples into the real. He insists on the open mind, the study of fact, the fresh, keen eye turned on the actual doings of God. When life and thought have such a centre, a simplicity and an integrity follow beyond what we might readily guess. When thine eye is single, thy whole body is also full of light. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. It is this fullness of light that we find in Jesus. And as the light plays on one object and another, how clear and simple everything grows. All round him was subtlety, cleverness, fastidiousness. His speech is lucid, drives straight to the centre, to the principle, and is intelligible. We may not see how far his word carries us, but it is abundantly plain that simple and straightforward people do understand Jesus. Not all at once but sufficiently for the moment, and with a sense that there is more beyond. His thought is uncomplicated by distinctions due to tradition and its accidents. His whole attitude to life is simple. He has no taboos. He comes eating and drinking, 
and he told his followers when he sent them out to preach to eat what they were given give alms he says of such things as ye have and behold all things are clean unto you if god gives the food it will probably be clean and the old taboos will be mere tradition of men he is not interested in what men call signs in the exceptional thing the ordinary suffices when once he's got in it one of jesus's great lessons is to get men to look for god in the commonplace things of which god makes so many as if abraham lincoln were right and god did make so many common people because he likes them best the commonest flowers god thinks them out says jesus and takes care of them hence there is very little need of special machinery for contact with god priesthoods trances visions or mystical states abnormal means for contact with the normal when jesus speaks of the very highest and holiest things he is as simple and natural as when he is making a table in the carpenter's shop sense and sanity are the marks of his religion sense of fact is a phrase which does not exclude perhaps it even suggests some hint of dullness the matter-of-fact people are valuable in their way but rarely illuminative and it is because they lack the imagination that means sympathy now in jesus's case there is a quickness and vividness of sympathy he likes the birds and flowers and beasts he uses as illustrations they are not the natural objects with which dull people try to brighten their pages and discourses they are happy living things that come to his mind as it were of themselves because how shall we say they know that they will be welcome there and they are welcome his pity and sympathy are unlike ours in having so much more intelligence and fellow-feeling in them he understands men and women as his gift of bright and winning speech shows after all as carlyle has pointed out in so many places it is this gift of tenderness and understanding of sympathy that gives the measure of our intellects it is the faculty by which men touch fact and master it it is the want of it that makes so many clever and ingenious people so futile and distressing the sense of fact and the gift for sympathy are the foundations so to speak of the imagination which gives their quality to the stories and pictures of jesus he thinks in pictures as it were they fill his speech and every one of them is alive and real think for example of the light of the world the straight gate and the narrow way the pictures of the bridegroom sower pearl merchant and the men with the net the sheep among the wolves the woman sweeping the house the debtor going to prison accompanied by his creditor the officer with the judge's warrant the shepherd separating the sheep from the goats the children playing in the market-place pretending to pipe or to mourn the fall of the house or the ironical pictures of the blind leading the blind straight for the ditch the vintagers taking their baskets to the bramble-bushes the candle burning away brightly under the bushel the offering of pearls to the pigs or his description of what lay before him as a cup and a baptism and of his task as the setting fire to the world 
there is a truthfulness and a living energy about all these pictures not least about those touched with irony there are however pictures less realistic and more imaginative one or two of them in the language of the fireside quite creepy here is a house a neat trim little house and for the english reader there is of course a garden or a field round it and a wood beyond out of the wood comes something stealthily creeping up towards the house something not easy to make out but weary and travel-stained and dusty and evil a strange feeling comes over one as one watches it is evil one is certain of it nearer and nearer to the house it creeps it is by the window it rises to look in and one shudders to think of those inside who suddenly see that looking at them through the window but there is no one there fatigue changes to triumph caution is dropped it goes and returns with seven worse than itself and the last state of the place is worse than the first is this leaving the real one critic will say it is no says another man in a graver tone and speaking slowly it's real enough it's my story but have we left the text too far then let us try another passage here is a funeral procession a bier with a dead man laid out on it wrapped in a linen cloth bound head and foot with grave clothes a common enough sight in the east but who are they who are carrying him those silent awful figures bound like him hand and foot and wound with the same linen cloth moving swiftly and steadily along with their burden it is the dead burying the dead add to these the account of the three temptations stories in picture which must come from jesus himself and illustrate another side of his experience for to the mind that sees and thinks in pictures temptation comes in pictures which the mind makes for itself or has presented to it and at once lights up pictures horrible and once seen hard to forget and to escape no wonder he warns men against the pictures they paint themselves in their minds add also the other pictures of satan fallen and satan pushing into god's presence with a demand for the disciples are we to call these visions the word is ambiguous or are they imaginative presentments of evil as it thrusts itself on the soul with all its allurements and all its ugliness visions in the sense that is associated with trance we shall hardly call them they are pictures showing his gift of imagination lastly on this part of our subject let us remind ourselves of the many parables and pictures and sayings which put god himself before us here is the bird's nest and the one little sparrow fallen to the ground and god is there and he takes notice of it he misses the little bird from the brood here again is quite another scene the rich and middle-aged man who has prospered in everything and is just completing his plans to retire from business when he feels a tap on his shoulder and hears a voice speaking to him 
and he turns and is face to face with God. And are there all the other stories of God's goodness and kindness and care? Is not the very phrase, Our Father in Heaven, a picture in itself, if we can manage to give the word the value which Jesus meant it to carry? When one studies the teaching of Jesus and concentrates on what he draws us of God, God somehow becomes real and delightful in a most wonderful way. With all these faculties brought to bear on all he thinks, and loosened in all he says, there is little wonder that men recognised another note in Jesus from that familiar in their usual teachers. Rabbi Eliezer of those times was praised as a well-trough that loses not a drop of water. We all know that type of teacher, the tank mind, full, no doubt, supplied by pipes and ministering its gifts by pipe and tap, regulated, tiresome and dead. The water that I shall give him, says Jesus in the fourth gospel, shall be in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The water metaphors of the New Testament are not of trough and tank. Jesus taught men, not from a reservoir of quotations like a scribe or a rabbi, but possessed of authority itself. Who gave him that authority? asked the priests. Who authorises the living man to live? All things are delivered unto me of my Father. My word shall not pass away. He has proved right. His words have not passed away. The great son of fact, he went to fact, drove his disciples to fact, and in the striking phrase of Cromwell, spoke things. And we can see in the record again and again the traces of the mental habits and the natural language of one who habitually based himself on experience and on fact. Critics remark on his method of using the Old Testament and contrast it with contemporary ways. St. Paul, for instance, in the passage where he weighs the readings seeds and seed, is plainly racking language to the destruction of its real sense. No one would ever have written seeds in that connection, but in the style of the day he forces a singular into an utterly non-natural significance. St. Matthew, in his first two chapters, proves the events which he describes to have been prophesied by citing Old Testament passages, two of which conspicuously refer to entirely different matters and do not mean at all what he suggests. The Hebrew with the Old Testament, like the Greek of those days with Homer, made what play he pleased. If the words fitted his fancy, he took them regardless of connection or real meaning. If he was pressed for a defence, he would take refuge in allegory. A fashion was set for the church which bore bad fruit. The Old Testament was emptied of meaning to fortify the Christian faith with proof texts. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, it is for other ends and with a clear, incisive sense of the prophet's meaning. Go ye and learn what that meaneth, 
I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He not merely quotes Hosea, but it is plain that he has got at the very heart of the man and his message. Similarly, when he reads Isaiah in the synagogue at Nazareth, he lays hold of a great passage and brings out with emphasis its value and its promise. He touches the real, and no lapse of time makes his quotations look odd or quaint. When he is asked which is the first commandment of all, he at once, with what a modern writer calls a brilliant flash of the highest genius, links a text in Deuteronomy with one in Leviticus. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And, he adds, the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Thus his instinct for God and his instinct for the essential carry him to the very centre and acme of Moses' law. At the same time, he can use the Old Testament in an efficient way for dialectic, when an argumentum ad hominem best meets the case. Going to fact directly, and reading the Bible on his own account, he is the great pioneer of the Christian habit of mind. He is not idly called the captain by the writer to the Hebrews. Authority and tradition only too readily assume control of human life. But a mind like that of Jesus, like that which he gave to his followers, will never be bound by authority and tradition. Moses is very well, but if God has higher ideas of marriage, then what? The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, but that does not make them equal to Moses. Still less does it make their traditions of more importance than God's commandments. The Sabbath itself was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Where the habit of mind is thus set to fact, and life is based on God, on God's will and God's doings, it is not surprising that in the daily round there should be noted sanity, reserve, composure and steadiness. It may seem to be descending to a lower plane, but it is worth while to look for a moment at the sheer sense which Jesus can bring to bear on the situation. The Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, if a man's sheep is in a pit on the Sabbath, what will he do? Or will he refrain from leading his ox to the water on the Sabbath? Such questions bring a theological problem into the atmosphere of sense, and it is better solved there. He is interrupted by a demand that he arbitrate between a man and his brother, and his reply is virtually, does your brother accept your choice of an arbitrator? And that matter is finished. Are there few that can be saved? asks someone in vague speculation, and he gets a practical answer addressed to himself. Even in matters of ordinary manners and good taste, he offers a shrewd rule. Luke records also two or three instances of perfectly banal talk and ejaculation addressed to him. The bizarre talk of the Galilean murders, the pious, 
if rather obvious remark of some man about feasting in the kingdom of god and the woman's homey congratulation of mary on her son in each case he gets away to something serious above all we must recognize the power which everyone felt in him even herod judging by rumour counts him greater than john the baptist the very malignity of his enemies is a confession of their recognition that they are dealing with someone who is great men remarked his sedative and controlling influence over the disordered mind he is not to be trapped in his talk to be cajoled or flattered there is greatness in his language in his reference of everything to great principles and to god greatness in his freedom from ambition in his contempt of advertisement and popularity in his appeal to the best in men in his belief in men in his power of winning and keeping friends in his gift for making great men out of petty in all this we are not stepping outside the gospels nor borrowing from what he has done in nineteen centuries in galilee and in jerusalem men felt his power and so finally what of his calm his sanity his dignity in the hour of betrayal in the so-called trials before the priests before pilate on the cross the pharisees said tertullian ought to have recognized who christ was by his patience end of chapter three